Coming up on the Keto Camp Podcast, we have naturopathic physician, Dr. Ralph Esposito. Most of the time, as you said, you need to adapt. The most successful humans, the most successful athletes, Evolutionarily, we have learned to adapt. If we are unable to adapt, we will not survive and we will not be able to progress as individuals. I'm a certified functional health practitioner who's on a mission to educate 1 billion people. I've been obese for most of my life. From rock bottom to the top of the mountain, I am passionate about studying ancient healing strategies like fasting and the ketogenic diet and curating this information on the Keto Camp podcast. My goal is to bring you the thought leaders in this space. My name is Ben Azadi, and I wanna thank you for spending part of your day with me. Hey, Keto Campers. Today's episode is with a brilliant practitioner, and we're gonna talk a lot about men's hormonal health. With that being said, if you're a woman listening to this, it's still gonna be an important episode because maybe you have a partner who's a man or a friend or somebody you know who could benefit from this. So having this information and understanding it would help you communicate this better to that person. So here are some of the things we covered on this episode of the Keto Camp Podcast. Low testosterone and energy levels are two of the most common things that we see in men when it comes to complaints and why. We're gonna talk about the common reasons why this happens. What is the connection between the brain, the hypothalamus, the pituitary, and the testes? And what's going on with, with that communication when there is a miscommunication? Why is this happening? How to correct it? What are the best lab markers to look at when we're looking at hormonal health for men? the best exercises for boosting testosterone. He's gonna reveal his big five. These five movements, if you add it into the mix, you'll see a boost in available testosterone. We get into intermittent fasting and how it affects the hormones and when too much fasting can be a bad thing. We also talk about the difference between cutting your calories and eating small portion control meals throughout the day and cutting your calories with intermittent fasting. There's a big difference there, and we'll talk about that. We'll talk about counter-regulatory hormones. We also talk about being in ketosis too long, how that could negatively impact the thyroid, and so much more. This is such a great episode to geek out on. You might wanna listen to this a couple times to really understand it, so I can't wait to share Ralph with you soon. Before I do, I wanna acknowledge you for choosing the Keto Camp Podcast. Thank you so much. You know, Out of all the podcasts out there you could be listening to, you're on this one right now, and I am so grateful for that. So thank you. And if you haven't left the show a rating and review yet on Apple Podcast, please do so. It really makes a big difference for the show in getting this into other people's hands. And please share this episode with a friend, with somebody you think who would benefit from this. Take a screenshot of this episode of the Keto Camp Podcast and tag myself and Dr. Ralph on Instagram, and I'll be sure to see it and share it. My Instagram handle is at the Benazadi, that is T-H-E-B-E-N-A-Z-A-D-I, and Dr. Ralph's is Dr. Ralph Esposito. So that's doctor and then dot his full name right after. Tag us, I'll see it, I'll share it. Hey, I put together a kit for you, and uh, it is called my Keto Kickstart Kit. <laughs> if you head over to ketocampkit.com, you'll see some of my favorite items for following the keto lifestyle and intermittent fasting lifestyle. You'll see some of the great products on there that will help you break down fat, help with your energy levels, with your electrolytes. I put together this kit for you because I know it makes a big difference. These are what I take, what my clients take, and I put it in one location. If you head to ketocampkit.com, you could see these items, get them, and it'll help boost your results on keto and fasting. This Friday, I am doing a live webinar training called The Art of Fasting. I'm gonna take a deep dive into intermittent fasting, block fasting, what is the best fasting schedule for you and your lifestyle and your goals? What about the best foods to break your fast with, the worst foods to break your fast with? When does autophagy start? What is autophagy? How to boost autophagy? What about exercise and fasting? What about 
electrolytes in fasting. And I'm gonna reveal little hacks for you that make the biggest difference for those who are practicing fasting. So this is a webinar that does have limited space uh, with Zoom. We have 500 spots open. Now that is half taken already. If you wanna be an action taker and be on that webinar this Friday, February 28th at 12 p.m. Eastern time, head over to benazadiwebinar.com. Get signed up, secure your spot. You also get over $200 worth in free gifts. Please only sign up if you could make the webinar live. If not, wait for the next one. That's benazadiwebinar.com. All right, let's get into this episode with Dr. Ralph Esposito. Dr. Ralph Esposito is a naturopathic physician, acupuncturist, and functional medicine practitioner specializing in integrative urology, men's health, and nutrigenomics. His precise and personalized style utilizes a systems biology and precision medicine approach. In addition to advising a peer reviewer for medical journals, he has authored several medical textbook chapters and has designed education modules for health professionals, specifically on urological conditions, male and female hormone dysfunction, hypogonadism, exercise, men's health, and sexual dysfunction. Dr. Ralph, welcome to the Keto Camp Podcast. Oh, man, I'm so excited. (laughs) (laughs) I'm excited, too. We were having a a brief conversation before we hit record here on fasting, and we'll get into all that, and men's health, hormone health, prostate cancer, and a lot of the cool things you're doing. But how did you get involved with this? What's your story, brother? Really interesting story. So now that I'm in my career, a lot of people ask me, well, you know, why didn't you go down the conventional route? Why didn't you become an MD or a DO? And even my girlfriend, she's just like, why didn't you go down that route? Like you're, you know, all of this stuff. And it first started when I was uh, about seven years old. My father had two heart attacks, like at, at their age of 50. And growing up, I always had this sense of security that he's going to be okay, that the medical system is going to help him. And as I started getting older, my father got even more sick and he recently passed away. But really at the end of it, I could probably list all the things that he were basically deteriorating his life. Uh, I don't have enough fingers to count it. Heart disease, emphysema, cancer, et cetera, dementia. And I talk a lot about this in my Instagram feeds my story about why I'm so diligent about it. So anyway, I started growing up and then I was an overweight kid. And then I started realizing that nutrition can be a medicine. And growing up, I didn't know that that there were doctors that implemented nutritional medicine. And I was like, well, I can't be an MD. I can't be a DO or even a chiropractor because I don't know if they know enough about nutrition as a medicine. So nutritional interventions therapeutic intervention in nutrition. And then I found naturopathic medicine. I was like, wow, this is really like neck deep into nutritional medicine. It also includes herbs, but also includes like lifestyle, uh, sleep, exercise, all the things that we take for granted in our life, but that actually establish us for health. And then I started researching and I found while I was an undergrad at NYU, I started my nutrition degree there, which I still teach there and I love the program, but I always wanted more. And while I was there, I just researched naturopathic doctors, NYU, and my, who's my mentor, now one of my best friends, Dr. Gio Espinoza, he was like, yeah, why don't you come in? Like, I'll tell you about what I do. And he essentially took me under his wing. And I researched with him up until my undergrad till maybe about two years after med school, no, about three years after med school, where I did my, my medical internship with him. So I did my medical internship with him at NYU Urology in textbook chapters there. And I then ran with that and started becoming more involved in uh, men's health. It always fascinated me because I think nutrition uh, and men's health are largely connected. And the hormone aspect is, it's just how my brain thinks. I'm just fascinated by it. So it's just, a, it's more of a hobby than it is work at all. I love it. Yeah, because you're doing what you love to do and you're obviously really good at what you do. And I'm sorry to hear about your father. It's, it's so common. I mean, it happened with my dad as well. He lost his life from the complications of diabetes and nutrition, like you said, plays such a big role in how our body heals or how our body does the opposite of that and creates disease. So you are doing a lot of great work. I want to focus this episode on men's health because I've done a lot on, on women's health and hormone health. The main thing I see, Ralph, is low testosterone, low energy levels in men. 
And what are some of the common culprits that lead to that? And then what are some things they can do to implement in their lifestyle to improve that area? Yeah, I actually just wrote an email to a colleague who was like, you know, what could be causing this type of low testosterone? And I literally can rattle things off the top of my head. Like it could be a dozen things. But essentially what it comes down to is, is the brain not sending a message to the testes to make testosterone? Are the testes not making testosterone if they get that message? And then what is the body doing with that testosterone afterwards? So we usually call it either the primary or secondary hypogonadism. And essentially what we need to figure out is it, are the testes not making it or is it the brain that's not making it? And then once you can figure that out, then it allows you to identify what could be the underlying cause to be contributing to that. So if the brain is not making the hormones, we call them gonadotropins, FSH and LH, to signal to the testes and also other organs in the body, but mostly in the testes, to make testosterone, then we know that it's a central issue. And that's where we see a lot of what we call hypothalamic pituitary gonadal or HPG axis dysfunction, HPA axis dysfunction. I know you spoke with Dr. Kerry Jones about this, about the adrenal glands. So that also plays into effect. And that is an important aspect to control because you have to address the stressors that are contributing to that. Now, I could, like I said, I could list dozens of them and it would just be a ways to explain like what could cause this because it's so individualized. But I think the biggest culprits for what we see in HPG access dysfunction is sleep deprivation or poor sleep, chronic stressors. And I hate when physicians say, oh, this is caused by stress. Well, which one, what type, how frequently, how often, uh, at what amplitude are we, is this stressor happening? So that could be a sleep stressor. That could be a psychological stressor. That could be a physical stressor, like a burn or an injury. That could be a social stressor, like you don't get along with your partner or that's causing type of, or your family issues, right? Financial stressors, like all of these things are stressors, but they all impact us differently. And then when you try to figure that out and if that's working fine, then you look at the testes and you say, okay, are the testes not having an, uh, a sufficient uh, are, are insufficient at making testosterone on their own and things that can contribute to that like trauma if you ever like a lot of athletes who played sports you know i played soccer my whole life it's dangerous right like you can get a lot of injuries but not just to your testes but also to your head as well other issues are like heavy metals one of the most common metals that we see contribute to hypogonadism is lead there's a lot of animal trials in mice that shows that lead actually is toxic to the lytic cells of the testes so it can destroy fertility. Other issues could be uh, lack of raw material. So is there an insufficient of DHEA, uh, cholesterol, any of the pre-hormones that are necessary to make testosterone? And then once you put all of those together, and most of the time it's a combination of the two, then you could identify, okay, I've identified what the cause is. The treatment is not give them testosterone. The treatment is how can we correct that? And if that can't be corrected, then you have to look at other routes. Yeah, great breakdown right there. You're right. There's no, it's not so black and white. There's no cookie cutter approach to it. So let's say, how would you diagnose somebody if it's a HPG problem, if it's in the brain? How would you diagnose that? Would you look, would you test their follicle stimulating hormone, their luteinizing hormone? If you see that sky high, that's usually an issue there? Yeah, so what I look at is FSH. So my basic panel for ordering sex hormones on men and one of them is a little bit out of, uh, I don't want to say out of the box, but uh, overlooked. So FSH, follicle stimulating hormone, luteinizing hormone, LH. I check estradiol, E2. I always check it using a liquid chromatography mass spectrometry, which is much more sensitive and specific. I've seen inaccurate estradiol levels using something called a, an aminoacid. I do uh, DHEA-S, not DHEA, because the sulfated form is long-lasting in the blood. I test testosterone, free testosterone. And then I also check TSH, free T3, free T4, and all the other T4, T3 hormones, and then reverse T3. And a lot of people would ask, well, why would you want to check your thyroid? Because your thyroid hormone is absolutely essential for your testes to make testosterone. Without thyroid hormone, you will not be able to have proper mechanical function, or I would say functional, not really mechanical, but functional function of the testes because it's the kind of the engine or the key that allows those cells to work well. So 
those are the things that I look at. Now, if FSH and LH are really high, and it depends on what you consider to be really high, in my book, I look at uh, percentiles of the labs, and we can talk about this in depth as well, is I think a lot of physicians are misreading labs because they just don't understand statistics. So if a FSH and LH are trending upward, I like to tr monitor them over time. So not only what is the absolute value at that time, but what, how does it change over time? And if it's usually above five or six, then I'm a little bit more cautious. And I think that is more of a central or what we call hypothalamic pituitary gonadal dysfunction. And if those are low, then I would say that it's more of a central testicular issue. So uh, yeah, I've seen a correlation between h really high amounts of LH and FSH. And I'm talking about, yeah, the standard reference range is not really that accurate, but if you're just basing it off of that, six to 10 times greater than that. And uh, I've, the correlation I've seen is a lot of heavy metals, mercury and lead that get stored in that hypothalamus pituitary, which caused that, which is leading to that low testosterone score. Have you seen any of that clinically? So I have seen heavy metals have a more of an impact on libido. So I definitely see the result of low testosterone. A lot of my patients come to me with the heavy metals and then don't have the testosterone uh, checked. So I can't make the one-to-one -one correlation, but absolutely those, I think I did a post on this about uh, lead also accumulating in the uh, pituitary gland as well. So yes, absolutely, it certainly can do that very hard to make one-to-one -one connections and yeah, yeah. i think that's part of the the art of medicine is not always jumping on this is the cause of that um looking at relative risk ratios odds ratios hazard risks like what is the probability that this is true and then how certain am i that is true and most of the time i can make that correlation but i can't say it's causal yeah, totally. I agree with that as well. It's it's uh, a, it could be a contributing factor, but you got to do some more investigating to to find that out. Uh, that was interesting what you shared about lead affecting the Leydig cells of the uh, testicles. I haven't read that, but I believe it. I, I mean, I want to read it, but I do believe that it could have that effect because I've seen mercury and there's a study called the Drash study which shows the amount of silver fillings in a person's mouth is equivalent to the amount of mercury that's stored in the hypothalamus pituitary, which can also create problems downstream. So let's say they have uh, their HPA access is totally fine. Their HPG is, is fine. So now it's a downstream issue. So what are some things that you see on a, on a blood report that determine that? So there's, a, there's two ways to diagnose this. You can do a stimulation test and one of the great drugs, and I use drugs as a last option, but I think one of the great drugs is Clomid or Clomiphene. And Clomiphene is a selective estrogen receptor modulator. And what it does, or AKA CERM, S-E-R-M, and what it does, it blocks estrogen receptors in the brain and stimulates the pituitary gland to make more LH and FSH. If somebody's LH and FSH goes up while on Clomid and their testosterone does not go up, it's pretty obvious that there's a, a primary issue in their testes to make testosterone. Then what other things do you see? You see low testosterone, you see low pre-testosterone, you see low estradiol, and sometimes you see higher DHEAS because the body is trying so hard to produce the uh, precursor to make testosterone that it tries to uh, upregulate or upramp the testosterone production but it's just insufficient. That's when the Leydig cells have just pretty much have been destroyed. The issue is, is that uh, testicular function actually decreases. There's conflicting data, but we say from 0.8 to like 1.5% per year after the age of 30. And that just basically means that it's an aging process. I don't think that should be the case. I think that is a pattern of what we're seeing in our society because of the chronic hyperglycemia, hyperinsulinemia, the sleep deprivation. I think all those things are the reason why we're seeing that trend. I don't think it's a, an all else equal, just aging causes you to have your testes to, to dysfunction in that respect. That's very interesting. So they, they take Clomid to see if FSH and LH goes up, and if it does, but testosterone doesn't go up, then it's a problem with the, with the Leydig cells is what you're saying. So what if somebody takes Clomid and they already have high LH and FSH? Is that not a good idea? If I did a lab test on them, FSH and LH are high and then gave them Clomid, 
likelihood of it working is quite low. Okay. But I was actually discussing with a colleague of mine, and the biggest issue here is the uh, LH receptors on the testes have a big impact, and the androgen receptors all over the body, but also in the testes have an impact as to how well that will function. But if I had to bet money on it, I would say if your LH and FSH are high in the six, seven range, Clomid probably won't work. doesn't hurt to try, but might be a low-hanging fruit, but not very fruitful. Yeah, <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, no pun intended there. Uh, okay, so you mentioned low estradiol, typically, not high. Yep, right. So if you have low testosterone, your estradiol will be low if it's a primary testicular issue. What about if somebody has high estrogen and low testosterone? Well, that means over-aromatization to estradiol. And the cause of that is, so the enzyme that makes uh, testosterone to estradiol is aromatase. And that can convert it to estrone and estradiol. And then those interchange with each other. Most of the time, that is a metabolic dysfunction. And it depends on how low the, their testosterone is. Sometimes the testosterone is so low that it's just hard to convert it to estradiol. But remember that you can also make estradiol not with testosterone. You can make it from anestenedione, which is a, uh, which is why some people who take DHEA sometimes can have high estrogen estrogen levels. So if you have higher estrogen levels and lower testosterone, that tells me that there's a upregulation of that enzyme. Your body is shunting it to estradiol. What are contributing to that? Um, environmental toxins. I've been doing a ton of research on this, and in the past week, I've been I've received about four articles, new journal articles, talking about the impact of endocrine, um, environmental endocrine disruptors and what it does in upregulating aromatase enzyme. A lot of that is in in vitro studies or in vivo studies, less so in humans, but I know that these things are disrupting. So you also have to look at the environment as well. And then the most common, and you'll know this, is high insulin levels will upregulate aromatase along with inflammatory markers to upregulate aromatase to push testosterone to estradiol. Yeah, yeah, great great tips right there and great explanation of what's going on. So, okay, we broke down what may be happening with low testosterone. It could be upstream, it could be downstream. What are now some ways for somebody to naturally boost testosterone? You mentioned that giving more testosterone is not really the answer, and I agree. The way the example that I always give is kind of like when you when you scream at your kids to go clean their room, they, they're going to listen at first. But if you keep screaming at them, they're going to become more deaf to your screams. Same thing with the hormones. It's going to become more blunted and you're going to have to give more and more and more. So what are some natural things that you provide for your patients to help boost testosterone? Right. So you have to first start with the foundations. It's always exercise. It's always sleep. And it's always nutrition. I really don't care what other herb supplement I don't know. I've heard people putting, and this is odd, but they put like ice on their testes and they're like, oh, this is going to increase my testosterone levels. I think the thought from that is heat is bad for testosterone production. So ice might be good, which logically makes sense. But um, I think icing your testicles has a risk of causing damage. So I would advise not to do that. Yeah. So if you're not sleeping seven hours, you're not able to release the proper amount of growth hormone, uh, FSH and LH during your sleep. So you're probably getting insufficient deep sleep or slow wave sleep. And also you're not able to recover. So if you are exercising, uh, which is a stressor, and then you're not sleeping, which is a stressor, you're upregulating the production of cortisol, which is going to suppress your testosterone production. So number one is sleep. Nutrition. A hyperinsulinemic, high-carbohydrate diet is probably the sure-proof way to damage your testosterone levels. And the reason why is for many reasons, but insulin is, is pro-inflammatory. It is anabolic, but it is anabolic to an extent. Uh, it does promote inflammation. It can upregulate the synthesis of aromatase, so it'll convert your testosterone. And also, your body, when it's under an immense amount of stress, and we can even talk about this under fasting regimens, you're under these chronic levels of stress. And I, I talk about this a lot of, about the allostatic load, which is basically what is your threshold to which beyond that point, 
disease occurs or dysfunction occurs. And these low-level stressors like a high-carb diet, like a high-sugar diet, high-processed type of diet will contribute to the low-level stress, which will then contribute to issues in your ability to make hormones. So that's number two. And then thirdly is exercise. Because what we do know is that uh, increased levels of lactic acid help increase the production of or help sensitize the LH receptors in your testes. So just allowing the body's own ability to do what it needs to do more efficiently. Now, that's probably something that most people know, but there are a few other things that I like to go to. There's really good data on ashwagandha. I use a formula called KSM66, uh, which is probably one of the more researched types of ashwagandhas, or something called uh, Latin is withania somnifera. DHEA, uh, as a supplement, there is some literature suggesting that in men who are hypogonadal or in men who are over-exercising, that supplementation with DHEA can be beneficial in producing their sex hormones, especially if they're under high levels of cortisol or high stress, which leads to high levels of cortisol. There are a few other herbs like nettle root, which can inhibit SHBG. It has to be at a very high dose, however. Uh, there's other herbs that can help improve libido that don't have an impact on testosterone. And one of them is, is maca root, uh, usually at like five grams. Other herbs, something called macuna perens or dopamine, is another herb that I, another test that I would advise is that some people should get their prolactin checked. Because if you have a very low LH and FSH, it can be due to an elevated prolactin. And that could be due to either a microadenoma, so like a tumor in your brain, but oftentimes it could be due to low dopamine levels. And macuna, also called uh, dopamine, has L-DOPA in it, which can increase your dopamine. And there is some literature suggesting that that can improve testosterone levels. So, you know, it really is a tailored approach, but those are the foundational things that I like to use. Uh, there are other herbs like Tonkat Ali, uh, Urocomia longifolia, which can be helpful. Research is a little bit mixed on that, but uh, what it is, is it's not one thing. It's a multifactorial approach that is most uh, efficient. Yeah, and you said you start with the foundation, which is sleep, exercise, and nutrition, and then those add-ons are that much more effective. But if you just take all those herbs and uh, without doing the other things, then it's just not going to work. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. I try to emphasize that to some patients, and that's why a lot of them are just like, well, I want to go get testosterone. I want to go get this medication, and that's great, but you also have to understand that that's not super easy to manage. It's a lifestyle change that you have to do for the rest of your life. And the other aspect is, you know, you need to have a practitioner who understands this stuff like the back of their hand, because if something goes off or you get a curveball, like how does that impact you? And, you know, things like that, like, you know, heart disease and any type of random syndrome that occurs, autoimmune disease, certain types of cancers, you need to be prepared to know that, like, this is how you prepare for those things if I right, want to go down this route. And I think a really important point then is, you know, a lot of people just want to like take my advice and say, okay, I'm going to do this, but I don't even treat myself, right? So you should always take the guidance of a practitioner because they can fine tune it to you because maybe it's your sleep. Maybe you're eating too little. Maybe you're over uh, stressing the body. Like you don't know those things from a personal view and it takes a third person to help with that. Yeah. Great point. I love that. So let's talk a little bit about Exercise, it's not all created equal. What are some of the biggest bang for your buck movements somebody can do to get that boost in testosterone? Which exercise movements do you recommend to boost testosterone? I call them the big five and I never deter from these major exercises. So it's deadlift, squat, pull up, bench press, and rows, right? Some people would throw a shoulder press in there, but really working out your back, your legs, and your chest as well are the three major largest muscle groups. Your gluteus, your butt muscles usually are the most stimulated with these type of workouts. Those are the workouts that would stimulate the most um, endocrine response. But the thing is, is that people think it's like, you know, if I work out, I get more testosterone right after I work out. And there is literature suggesting that you can increase testosterone levels after you work out uh, with weight training. The issue is, is duration and frequency. So, once you hit the 45 to 50 minute mark of weight training, there's enough stimulus of stress on the body that it starts to release uh, cortisol. And that can have a detriment if you start pushing it a lot longer. A great example of this are marathon runners. Marathon runners, 
once they get to that 45 minute mark, 50 minute mark, and if you're a trained marathon runner, it's less robust. But if like if I started to go doing hour runs, there is a cortisol response there. And that's why we see marathon runners are pretty much in a catabolic state, right? They're breaking down a lot more than they're building up compared to a sprinter, right? Like look at the legs of a sprinter compared to the legs of a marathon runner. It's completely different. So, and by the way, sprinting is also a great exercise. So those are the exercises that I would think would be most efficient in improving uh, your hormonal response, not just testosterone, but the whole hormonal milieu that is necessary for an anabolic state and to promote a proper endocrine system, including your, your brain, your testes, your adrenals, your thyroid, all of the above. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, less is more. You, you could overdo it and overtrain. And by the way, if you're not getting sleep to recover from that workout, then a lot of that workout will be a loss because you're just going to – you break down muscle in the gym. You break down fibers in the gym and you repair and recover at night like you mentioned. So it's all those three pillars. It's the nutrition, right? Staying away from high-carbohydrate, frequent eating, uh, and do more of a ketogenic, low-carb lifestyle with fasting, which we'll talk about. Working out, doing the right exercises. You didn't mention curls and isolated movements. Those have a time and place, but that's not going to give you the biggest bang for your buck. You talked about multi-joint compound movements, those top five with the sprinting, and then you mentioned sleep. So those are the big pillars right there, and if you could focus most of your energy and time on that, then everything else that you're adding on, the supplements, uh, the herbs, and all the things you're doing will make a difference for you because you're taking care of the foundation. So I love that. Those are great tips, Ralph. Let's switch gears here and let's talk about fasting, intermittent fasting. What does that do for the hormones and how much is too much? Uh, I know that you can fast too much and I talk about it often. So let's get into fasting. Let's start with this. What are some of your favorite benefits of intermittent fasting? When you say intermittent fasting, let's define what that means. Do you mean time restriction? Do you mean five days eating, two days not eating? Because everybody has a different definition of it. And my, I'll give you my definition. So there's time restriction, which is like the 16A, early 18, 6 type of eating, you know, only eating within that window. And then there's intermittent fasting, which is usually, you know, 24 hours of no food or 48 hours of no food, 72 hours, or if you just want to go like five days or seven days of no food. So I'm assuming you're thinking your time restrict your definition of time restricted feeding. Eight, let's say 18 hours, you're in a fasted state, six hour years your, your feeding window. Okay. So the benefits, number one, is gut rest. This is a huge thing that I think has the most benefit. There are bacteria in our gut. And look, I'm not the hugest fan of all this microbiome testing that's going on just because it's so variable. There are a few labs that I like. DSL is one who does PCR testing and can get you more accurate data. But I don't know what to do with that information for uh, you know the thousands of microbiome that are in there. But what we do know from the literature is that the, there's bacteria that, that thrive during fasted state and a fed state. And the ones that are thriving during a fasted state, they usually digest the mucin on your intestinal tract. And we need this proper balance between the two. So the biggest issue with us as Americans is that we're constantly eating. And I think by giving your gut some rest, it allows you to heal. Because remember, the gut is one of the quickest healing uh, organs in the body that the cell turnover rate is so frequent that by constantly eating, you're not giving it time to repair. So that's that's one aspect of, of gut repair. And also that's benefits the liver, that benefits, I mean, I, I see lipoproteins and lipids completely drop on people, you know, once they do more fasting regimen because they're able to use their fats as energy. So that's one of the major benefits. The other one, as I've mentioned, is that it can help improve cardiovascular uh, function. We see that by making yourself more sensitive to insulin, so having less insulin being released, having it more in that six to eight hour window rather than you know 14 hours of just constantly having insulin pumped into your body can have impacts on your ability to improve body composition, reduce inflammation. So those are the major aspects I would see is improve body comp, improve gut health, brain function or neurological or cognitive function is a huge thing that we see. I think those would be the three major benefits that I see with time-restricted feeding. Um, and I'm sure you're going to ask me what the caveats are to that. Yeah, I, mean, I wanted to ask you as well, you know, when is too much fasting not good for you? How do you know if somebody's, like, what are some things you pay attention to when you're like, oh, this person's fasting too much? 
Yeah, thyroid hormone starts to become suppressed. That's the first thing that you will see. And you'll notice this more frequently. I mean, obviously you could do a TSH and see that the TSH is going up, or you can see the free T3 going down. You could see reverse T3 going up. That's what you'll measure. But what you'll see is fatigue. You'll see low motivation to go to the gym or to go exercise, low libido. If your libido is sliding down, that is an issue. Uh, it could be an overstress on the system. It could be uh, overly fasting. Other issues could be other symptoms of like low thyroid, like cold fingers and feet, uh, weak hair. Uh, you start seeing the outer portion of the eyebrow. The eyebrow hair starts thinning, so it should align with the outer canthus of your of your eye. And if it starts becoming thinner or inward, then you know that there's a thyroid issue, and that could be contributed to, to fasting. And then poor muscle recovery. So I see a lot of people who fast, they work out, and they are only eating, you know, I don't know, maybe 1,200 calories or 1,500 calories. They're burning 600 calories in the gym, but they're not improving their body composition. And that is a sign of a hypercortisolemic response, which cortisol will uh, impair your ability to, for lipolysis to break down fat. And that is when we start seeing uh, decreases or a plateauing of body composition. Yeah, I've seen that in the past as well. And, you know, too much of a good thing ends up being a bad thing. And this is a perfect example right there. I see it as well with being in ketosis too long. And that's what I teach is to start flexing out because the thyroid can be affected the same way fasting can affect it as well. What is the difference, Ralph, between cutting your calories and intermittent fasting, time-restricted feeding? Great question. So... There's cutting your calories or caloric restriction, which is what a lot of diets are, are working towards is how do you reduce your body fat or how do you improve your body composition is you reduce the total amount of calories. Now, you can reduce your total amount of calories. Let's say it's 700. It could be 1,000. It could be 1,500. That's just reducing how much you're taking in. Fasting has a completely different impact because food is a message to the body. And even getting more granular than that, protein, carbohydrate, and fat are messengers in the body. And even more granular is fatty acids and lipoproteins and amino acids and simple carbohydrates are messengers in the body. Great example of this is leucine. Leucine is an amino acid, which it, amino acids then make up proteins that impacts something called mTOR. And mTOR can impact muscle protein synthesis and something called autophagy. So uh, when you're fasting, you are radically changing the microenvironment, micronutrient environment of the body to change the signaling that the body will see. Where uh, hypocaloric diets or reduce, reducing calories completely removes that aspect of those that micronutrient or micro macronutrient profile within the body it, it's a completely different mechanism it's it's a lot of biochemistry it's a lot of physiology but in essence you're changing the messaging that occurs within the body and you could do that other ways you could change the messaging in the body by meditation by exercise by taking exogenous hormones but food is the one thing that we have always evolved with we have always evolved with food. It's just a natural part of our environment. So it's simple to understand that these are the things that are going to be most influential on our uh, biochemistry and our physiology. Yeah, great explanation. It's just not as simple as, hey, just eat less and move more. And you're doing, if, if you're a practitioner and you're, and you're educating your client or patient with that, you're doing them a disservice because I do believe calories matter, but I don't think they're important. I think they're a big distraction from, from what really matters, which is what you just said. I mean, we have those two pathways, we have growth mTOR, mechanistic target of rapamycin, and then the opposite, we have autophagy. And we don't want too much of either. We want a, a healthy balance, and there's an art to it. And if you can kind of master that art of feast-famine cycles, that's what we're hardwired to do for millions of years. Our ancestors and our DNA are hardwired for that. So when you fast and cut calories, because you might cut calories when you fast, you're getting the benefit of counter-regulatory hormones that stay increased during the fast, so it prevents the metabolism from shutting down, and you get that autophagy where your body 
is cleaning out cells. So you won't get any of that if you're just cutting calories and eating those small portion control meals throughout the day. So the next time somebody tells you that you're going to slow down your metabolism when you fast, ask them if they know anything about mTOR, autophagy, or counter-regulatory hormones, and they're going to tell you what's that. So <laughs> I, think, I think a more simple question is, is, do you know anything about biochemistry or physiology? Right. Like if you can explain to me how something works from the second you put it in your mouth to what happens when it hits your gut to where it goes in the body, if you can't explain that, then go back to the drunk board. Yeah, exactly. Great way to put it. What is your current schedule for fasting and, uh, and eating and feasting? So I experiment a lot with myself. And if you follow me on social media, I'll tell you about all the things that I experiment with myself. I grew up as a overweight child. I was 240 pounds at the age of 16. So wow. for lack of better terms, yeah, I was a chunky kid. I, <laughs> I joke with my friends uh, and my girlfriend. I said, you know, when I was growing up, I had a shop in the Husky section. Like, if you don't know what the Husky section is, is you were fine. Yeah, I know what the Husky, Husky section is. I was with you on that one. <laughs> oh, man. How embarrassing was yeah. it, right? Yeah. Like, no, my son can't fit into that. We have to go to the Husky set. Yep. But I grew up as an Italian kid. My parents grew up in Italy, poor as hell. Like, they didn't have money. They came here like, oh, we're going to feed you hot dogs and hamburgers and pancakes all the time. I like pancakes, just not anymore. Not as frequent. <laughs> Paleo pancakes. I like my, my coconut yeah. flour pancakes. Right. Sorry, I got distracted. Oh, my, my schedule. Sorry. Yeah. So I, I experiment a lot. And I've experimented with, um, I love working out in the morning, but I hate eating in the morning. So I've, I've done experiments where I have uh, fasted until noon, sometimes 2 p.m. So it usually puts me in like the 17 to 20 hour range of fasting. And then uh, I've done experiments where I would exercise in the afternoon. Truthfully, I find the best benefit when I exercise in the afternoon fast up until that time, and then work out. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, eat after I work out. So right now I'm on a kick of afternoon exercising, fasting up until that time, and then working out. Most of the time, if I work out in the morning, I will eat after that workout, but start my fasting time, my unfed time, a little bit earlier. So if I work out at like 6 o'clock, then I probably won't eat until 7.30, 8 o'clock, and then that's, that's it. And I just try to fluctuate where my eating time is. Uh, my type of training, I also mess with that. I Right now, I'm doing more of a circuit type of CrossFit type of training. But I also mix that in with traditional bodybuilding weight training using you know the major movements that we discussed. All that changes is time under tension and duration of the exercise and intensity. I think people try to overcomplicate exercise essentially what it comes down to is are you stimulating the muscle are you stimulating the right muscles are you promoting your stability so you are you making sure you're safe in what you're doing and uh, are you recovering right so you know active recovery those are the things that i try to implement within my plan and i try to move at least every day i don't think there's a day where i just like veg out on the couch Awesome. I love it. Yeah, your schedule is very similar to mine. I, I don't work out in the morning. I work out midday, early afternoon, and I'm always in a fa most of the time in a fasted state. Uh, and then I'll continue fasting for like an hour or two, and then I'll break the fast. And uh, I feel so much better when I work out on an empty stomach as opposed to if I have a meal right beforehand. Oh, yeah. 100%. Right? Yeah. And the other thing is that if I fast too long and I push myself to an afternoon workout, I know when my gains will start decreasing because I'll notice like I fasted too, I've been fasting too long, too frequently. So like I could do like five days straight of TRF, like really strict, like, you know, maybe even 18, 20 hours, try to train right after that. And I'm like, you know what, you know, my deadlift hasn't moved. I'm not able to lift this weight. I can't complete as many reps. And that's a sign to me. It's like, okay, listen to your body, trust the process, go back to this step, take a step back and then move forward. And this also comes down to my philosophy of medicine is that health is not linear. And nothing is really linear when it comes to medicine and uh, naturopathic medicine and anything that you do is that you are going to progress. And, you know, I to kind of take it like there's two points on a line, right? Like I, you are here. I want you to be here, but it's not a straight line to get these two together. There might be some ups and downs, but essentially the, the slope is positive. And that's essentially what I want people to get to and try to understand. But for people to realize that you just can't get from A to B 
with two steps is very hard for them to understand. And they have to understand that this is a process. Um, and as you, I'm sure you've learned in your journey, like what works for you. Yeah, yeah, ex exactly. Great point. You're right, because what works for me doesn't work for Ralph and vice versa. So it's about getting that relationship. Like you said, you know, when you have pushed it too much, you've done too much fasting and you worked out and now you're starting to diminish with your gain. So you understand that. So it's about developing that relationship to realize, oh, actually, this is not working for me. Let's start changing things up and i always tell people because i always get that question i'm sure you get asked a lot as well like if if somebody comes up to you or they message you on instagram oh i hit a, a plateau you know with my weight what do i do well the answer i always give them is mix things up you know whatever you're doing right now just like a great personal trainer or a crossfit coach will always change up the workouts to keep the body guessing and to create that adaptation same thing so if you've been doing 20 hours fasting every single day, well, it's time to change that schedule. If you've been in ketosis for four months, it's time to flex out. So what, what input would you give uh, to add, add to that? That's absolutely right. I think that also applies to other aspects in terms of just diversifying your diet. There's, I know I, I told you I'm not a huge fan of the microbiome stuff, but I, I think there's a lot of, a lot to learn there. And I think we know a lot, uh, but there's still a lot more to learn. And one thing I would say is like similar to your microbiome, your diet within 48 to 72 hours can completely diversify your microbiome and also can diversify the response in the body. So like the late Charles Poliquin, who I look up to and still read his work, he would always say, and he was doing this like before any of this was yeah. popular. And he would just say like, don't eat the same stuff all the time. And also the same thing goes for you know, there are certain uh, supplements and there are certain lifestyle things that need to be switched on and off at times. A great example of this is with sleep. There's never a time that I would tell somebody you need to diversify how many hours of sleep you're getting, right? Like you should always be getting seven to eight, ideally seven and a half to eight. But there are times where people get off a rhythm and they're getting five hours and they're like, okay, well, you know, I'll go to bed at 12 o'clock, but I got to be up at five. Let's say, Okay, that's great, but then they'll sleep until eight o'clock the next day, just so get the, just so that they can get the eight hours. And there's something called sleep restriction therapy, which is you keep the same wake time. So do not wake up later just to try to get those extra hours of sleep, because that's when you completely throw your circadian rhythm in flux. So there are a few things that I would say should be quite consistent, and that is your sleep regimen. But most of the time, as you said you need to adapt the most successful humans, the most successful athletes. Evolutionarily, we have learned to adapt. If we are unable to adapt, we will not survive and we will not be able to progress as individuals. I look at, at my life as, you know, there's evolution that has occurred over centuries and thousands and thousands of years, but I'm also evolving every single day of myself. Like my lifetime, if you had to put it on a time frame, is you know, I don't know, I hope to live to 100, but in 100 years, I want to be able to evolve during that time. And the only way to do that is to adapt. Like, I'm not going to be able to deadlift 400 when I'm, you know, 85, but I would love to, but I have to adapt to make sure that I can continue to do that as I get it, get older. Right on. Adaptation is key. I would say I got this from Dr. Pompa. Good cells get stronger. Bad cells don't adapt. So right on. I love what you just shared there. All right. We are running out of time here, and I want to make sure I get to my rapid fire questions. Are you ready for this, Ralph? Oh, you didn't warn me about this. Yeah, I didn't warn you, but that's, that's the whole point. <laughs> All right. So let's do this. Um, what is your favorite keto food, low-carb food? Uh, eggs. How do you like them cooked? I, oddly, I like them over easy. Over easy. What's your favorite non-keto food? Maybe pancakes you mentioned earlier. <laughs> oh, man. If I really could go out and have a non-keto food right now, it'd probably be like a New York pizza. A New York pizza. What is the first thing you think of in the morning? How do I become better? What's the best piece of advice you've ever heard? The best adapt. Hmm. What's the worst advice you've ever heard? Don't worry. Favorite TV show growing up? Friends. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Last question is, if you had one superpower, what would you choose for that power to be? Oh, man. Flying. 
Flying. Awesome. I just want to get anywhere wherever I need to go at any moment. I love it. So rapid fire is done. Let's go back to friends real quick. Who's your favorite? Who was your favorite character that made you laugh the most? <laughs> oh, man. I still laugh at Phoebe. <laughs> she's a weird one. Yeah. I, For me, I can't watch like a TV show or another movie that she's in. And I'm like, that's Phoebe. Yeah, right. <laughs> she's only Phoebe and nothing else. For me, it's Ross. Ross cracked me up. Yeah, he, he was hilarious. Okay. Where can my audience learn more about your work? Your Instagram is great. So share your Instagram and whatever else you want to share. Yeah, you can find me on Instagram at dr.ralphesposito. I'm also on Twitter, which is at dr.ralphesposito. Website, dr.ralphesposito.com. It's pretty much straightforward in that respect. And then that's pretty much where you'll find most of the information on me. And then all over uh, social media with like podcasts and stuff, and especially this one. This was this was really, really fun. I, I, I really enjoyed like geeking out with you, which is, you know, a lot of times people are just t- asking me what I think, but I, I really appreciate your knowledge for everything. Thank you, Raf. Yeah, I had a lot of fun with you as well. You're brilliant. I love what you're doing. I've been a fan for a while now. So we'll, we'll make sure we put your uh, resources and links and all that in the notes. We have Rachel who puts that together. So go check out Ralph. His Instagram is phenomenal. He's one of the top health Instagrammers you got to go follow. So go, so go follow him today. Ralph, I want to acknowledge you for the work that you're doing in this world. You show up. You bring some great research with you. You sparked a lot of my interest with some of the things you said today that I'm going to follow up with. And uh, I just love what you're doing, man. And most most importantly, you're just a, a great human being. I love your attitude and what you're doing. And I'm just grateful to know you. And thanks for being on the show. You're going to make me blush. <laughs> Appreciate you, brother. Thank you, man. Keto Campers, I really hope you enjoyed that episode with Dr. Ralph Esposito. Please take a screenshot of this episode of the Keto Camp Podcast and tag me and Dr. Ralph on Instagram. My Instagram handle is at TheBenazadi and Dr. Ralph's is Esposito. When I see it, I'll share it on my stories. A reminder to get signed up for my free webinar, The Art of Fasting, taking place on February 28th at 12 p.m. Eastern Time. Head over to BenAzadiWebinar.com. Get signed up, secure your spot. Hopefully, you're hearing this on time, and I'll see you on that free webinar. If this show was valuable to you, please share it. Text it right now to a friend. Text it to somebody you know would benefit from this episode, and leave the show a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Apple iTunes. Go follow Ralph on Instagram. He has a lot of great content. Go check out his work. He's doing great work in the community. So give him a follow. Give him a shout out. Let him know you heard this episode with him on the Keto Camp Podcast. Show him some love. He's doing good work out there. I want to thank you for listening to this entire episode through. You'll hear me on the next one. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Benazadi, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or non-direct interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.